I grow nostalgic anytime Heath uh, leads us in worship because for those of you that don't know, Heath was our uh, very first uh, worship leader. So, a little over six years ago when we first formed and started meeting as a church, we just met in my home over in West Roseville. And so, I can remember Heath showing up early in the morning and knocking on the door of the church. <laughs> and me answering in my pajamas. And him coming in and setting up. I can still picture that. Somebody, how many of you were there? Some of you, okay. So a number of you remember that. So we would set up chairs in our uh, family room extending into our kitchen. Uh, very close, very, very intimate. And up in the front, there'd be a music stand. And this is where whoever was doing the music would be or I would be when I was going to preach. And then right behind uh, that individual was uh, a large television set. Kind of awkward. And then there was this fireplace with a painting of this Italian countryside. Random. We would... We would go out onto our patio for communion, and uh, people would gather around. And, and when we were, the seats were full, and and just sit on the counters in the kitchen, or on the island in the kitchen. So it was really, it was really, it was really cool, and and really a pain as well. Totally a pain. I mean, meeting in a home. For those of you who say, "Oh, I just love it when the church can gather in a home," I'm so glad that we no longer meet in a home. I really am. It's difficult. Thankfully, we're not being persecuted and needing to meet in homes, which is why the early church primarily was meeting in homes, by the way. And it is great, and we're blessed to be able to meet in a larger space and to come and, and, and to a common uh, place like this and gather. So, Three more sermons in the book of Colossians. Someone was asking about that this morning. Three more, including today which will get us to our Advent series, which will begin in November this year. So four sermons moving towards Christmas, uh, November 30th. But today, we have Colossians chapter two or 4, I'm sorry, verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. And Paul is continuing his instructions on how to live the Christian life. Very practical instructions here for the rest of his letter, on how to live the Christian life. Last week, he brought us into the Christian home and into the Christian workplace and described godly wives and husbands and children and dads and employees and employers. And This morning, though, Paul zeroes in on our mouths and more importantly, what comes out of them. What comes out of the mouths of Christians? What should come out of the mouths of Christians? Is it different? If so, what and how should we speak? Before I preach this sermon, let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful that we get to cry out to You today as our Father we're thankful for your paternal care, that you love us and care for us the way you do. 
and that You nourish us on days like this with Your Word. So we're here and we're thirsty and we're hungry and bread and water will not satisfy this hunger and thirst, but only Christ will satisfy this hunger and thirst. And so we come to You through Your Son, Jesus Christ, by Your Holy Spirit, and we ask that You would speak to our hearts through Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. What should come out of the mouths of Christians? Now Paul has already told us, if you remember in chapter 3, verse 8, and lots of other places, what should not come out of a Christian's mouth. Verse 8, chapter 3. But now you must put them all away, anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So that's what should not come out of a Christian's mouth. But what should come out of a Christian's mouth? And to get ready for this, these verses 2-6 through of chapter 4, to get ready for this talk of what should come out of the Christian's mouth, I would like us to flip over to the right to the book of James. So flip over to James chapter 3. And in James chapter 3, James talks about the tongue or the mouth or the words of Christians. And he talks about how dangerous our tongues are. How dangerous our mouths are. And it's probably the most extensive teaching in the New Testament on the speech of Christians. So I thought it would be helpful just to read it to get us ready to what we're gonna, for what we're going to read in Colossians today. And let's read specifically verses 3 through 10. James 3, 3 through 10. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by Hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So is the nursery rhyme true? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never what? Apparently not. Apparently not. Sticks and stones hurt. It goes away. But words. Can't some of you now remember words? Some words that were said to you 10, 20, 30, 
40 years ago. Words especially from people that you have loved and trusted. Words that have pierced and, and they've stayed for a long time. Now the mouth, the tongue, are words so dangerous. So dangerous. So we're thankful for Paul's teaching. Because he's going to tell us here, what, what should come from the mouths of Christians? Colossians chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And then we'll get to verses 5 and 6. But these verses have much to say about the speech of Christians and what should come out of the mouths of Christians. So number one, what should come from the mouths of Christians? Well, Paul tells us in the beginning of verse 2 here very clearly, prayer. Prayer. That's something different that should come from the mouths of Christians. First and foremost, Paul is saying, prayer should be bubbling out of the heart of a Christian. Bubbling out of our mouths. Prayer, which is talking to God. Talking with God. Communion with God. Fellowship with God. Prayer. When the Bible speaks of prayer, it speaks of private prayer and public prayer. You have private prayer, for example, that you do on your own, maybe in the morning or in the evening or throughout your day or in the car on the way to work or errands. It's this kind of prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus said, but when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So that's a very important kind of prayer. And it is a private prayer and it's time that is actually set aside to pray. Now for some of you, getting time aside to pray is very difficult. I know for my wife, she shares this with me. She can grow jealous of, of me and here I go off to my office and I can have an hour or hours of uninterrupted time with the Lord and it's actually part of my job. I need to spend time meditating on God's Word for my own soul, for your souls. and I have this luxury, it feels like. My wife, with six children, literally tells me that she has to lock herself in the bathroom. She has to lock herself in the bathroom just to get 90 seconds 120 seconds of devotional time sometimes. Well, that's Matthew 6.6. 6. Go into your secret room. If it's your bathroom, whatever it is. But time alone between you and God where you speak with Him. That's private prayer. And there's prayer that you do with other Christians. There's private and public. There's prayer that you do out loud with other Christians. Or corporate prayer. For example, when we gather together on Sundays, as a church, we are, or at least we should be, praying together. 
when we gather together on Sunday mornings like today, this is not private individual prayer as much as we're participating in corporate prayer. We're coming to God collectively and we're praying together. What that means is that we are not, or we should not be, I hope, merely listening to the preacher when he prays or listening to the service leader when he prays, but we should be praying with the preacher, praying with the service leader, or maybe you're gathered together at a prayer meeting or some other small group or church function, and when one Christian is praying out loud, it's not so much listening to the prayer, but it is praying with the Christian, the brother or sister who is praying. So it is engaged in prayer with them. It can be very easy just to listen. Oh, that's good. That's nice. That was good prayer. But we're to be engaged in praying with them and adopting their words as we agree with them as our own. That's what we're doing. So the way that you're engaging with other Christians when they pray out loud is you and your heart and mind are agreeing with what they're saying and you're adopting their words to God as your own words. In fact, do you know that we in the church has, since the beginning, we actually demonstrate this. We demonstrate this reality that we are engaged when someone else is praying and we are adopting their prayer and their words as our own at the end of the prayer when they say, Amen. And what do we normally say when the prayer says, Amen? You should say, Amen. And when you say, Amen, which means let it be, let it be so, I agree, you are adopting those words as your own, as if they were from your heart to God, as if you conceived them. So we're praying with one another. So we actively and audibly do that through saying amen. The point I'm making is it's really important to say amen. There we go. Enough said. Now listen, I don't want to be critical of us as a church. Never want to be critical. But I do think that we could grow in our amening. I think we could be a little more bold with the amen, a little more confident with the amen, a little less sheepish with our amens. Now sometimes maybe you just don't agree with the prayer. Don't say amen, that's okay, but you should probably talk to the person afterwards. But if you do, it's just I think that it's just too sheepish, I think. So when I hear the prayer and then I hear amen, I, I hear a lot of, I don't know who, I'm not turning around and looking, you and you and you and you, but I hear a lot of, amen. I, just, I don't think that's getting across what amen is supposed to get across. So I think it needs to be, amen. Right? I agree. Can we practice? Okay. So I'm going to bow my head and I'm going to say the Lord's Prayer. I know you all agree with the Lord's Prayer. And let's just see how this goes. Don't be silly. Don't scream or anything. Don't ruin this. But, but, but just imagine, I really wholeheartedly, earnest, I agree with this prayer and, and demonstrate that through your amen. Okay, let's bow our heads. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen. Right? Now, now, now think about it. Does, does that not demonstrate that we are engaged with this prayer? That we are agreeing with this prayer? That we are affirming this prayer? So just know that when you say amen like that, you're, you're doing what the amen is supposed to do. And if not, it's not really doing what the amen is supposed to do when we gather together corporately. Now, now you know, next week I'm going to be totally listening closely. So don't forget. Don't do it just for me. That's not what I mean, but, but don't forget. So this prayer here, private and public prayer, this prayer that Paul is prescribing here is corporate prayer. It's corporate prayer. When you gather together, okay, this is what he's thinking. Paul's saying when you gather together, pray like this. So public prayer. But of, but of course, the qualities of this public prayer, these should be the qualities of your individual secret prayers as well. So you can apply what we learn here about prayer to, to all your praying. But let's look specifically, because Paul gives a description of this Christ-rooted prayer. And in verses 2-4, through four, we see four qualities of this Christian's prayer. What should the prayer that comes out of the mouth of Christians be like? Well, number one, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. So it should be from our mouths, prayer that is steadfast. Romans 12.12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. It's a kind of prayer that is like breathing. That we are constantly praying. So our prayer should be steadfast. William Barclay says, he is telling them here to persevere in prayer. Even for the best of us, there comes times when prayer seems to be unproductive and pointless and to penetrate no further than the walls of the room in which we pray. Raise your hand if praying has felt like that before. He understands. I understand. You understand. That's when we have to persevere in prayer. That's when we have to be steadfast in prayer. He said, William Barclay, at such a time, the remedy is not to stop, but to go on praying. And then he makes this really big statement. For in those who pray, spiritual dryness cannot last. That is quite a statement. If that's true, that's a really big deal. For in those who pray, spiritual dryness cannot last. So there's a fighting in prayer. There's a steadfastness in prayer. I don't feel it. I don't feel like I'm being heard. I don't feel like my words are, are going past the walls of this room. We'll read the Psalms. And David felt that way all the time. What's the answer? To keep on praying. To be steadfast in prayer. Because it just will be impossible for the Christian to keep praying to God and have spiritual dryness last. 
So steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. So number two, this is prayer that is watchful or vigilant. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Christians are called to be watchful. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. We need to be watchful. We need to be vigilant. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Thessalonians 5.6 This is the way the Christian life is described. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He's not talking about physical sleep. He's talking about spiritual sleep where you just take your foot off the accelerator and you stop fighting and you stop laboring in your walk with Christ. As you cannot do that, we have to be watchful, working hard. And the primary way that you're watchful and working hard is in prayer. That's why you have to be steadfast in it. Remember, Jesus had this problem with the disciples on more than one occasion. Where He would bring them along and tell them once when they were at the transfiguration, when He went up to the mountaintop and He left some of them behind. And then once when He was in the garden of Gethsemane and He left some of them behind. And both times, what did the disciples do? They fell asleep. They fell asleep and He rebuked them in Matthew chapter 26, verse 40. And He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour. And how did He mean for them to be watchful with Him? Through prayer. Matthew 24.42 at the Transfiguration, He said, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Excuse me. This is general instruction for the Christian life. You don't know when Christ is going to come back. So be watchful. Isaiah 62, 6-7. God put something in place so that His people would be prayerfully watchful. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So God loves to be badgered by our prayers. He does not get annoyed with God. does not think, I got it. I've heard this. You're nagging me. He actually put a system in place so that day and night, God's people were always crying out to Him and asking for provision and protection. And so He calls us to do the same thing when He says be watchful and vigilant in prayer. So steadfast and watchful and with thanksgiving at the end of verse 2. A few more verses. Philippians 4.6 Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or Paul said earlier in this letter of Colossians, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
Or you know 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says, give thanks in all circumstances. And thankful why? Paul has told us in this letter. Remember chapter 1, verses 12-14. through 14, Giving thanks to the Father who has... Why am I so thankful? Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness, transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we are thankful. And when we pray to God, we cannot pray to God without being thankful. And then a fourth quality of this prayer, verses 3 and 4, at the same time, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So, fourth, we see that this prayer is prayer that intercedes. It intercedes. Paul says, when you pray, pray steadfastly, be watchful in it, be thankful in it, and when you pray, pray for us at the same time. What is he asking them to do? To intercede for us. Intercession is prayer that intervenes on behalf of another. Pleading with God to do something in the life of another. So Paul says, let there be intercession in your prayer. And look, in verses 3 and 4, how does Paul ask the Colossians to pray for him? What does he ask them to pray? And actually, the answer to that question reveals, number two, something else that God expects from the mouths of Christians, with Paul being no exception. So prayer... The first thing God expects from the mouth of Christians. But now, when we see what Paul requests, we find out a second thing that should come out of the mouths of Christians. Verses 3 and 4, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the Word to, what else should come out of our mouth? To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to. To speak. So what else should come out of the mouths of Christians? Number two, the Gospel. The Gospel. The Gospel should come out of the mouths of Christians. Here is Paul's... Let me break it down. Here is Paul's personal prayer request for himself and those with him. Number one, Pray that God will give us opportunities to proclaim the Gospel. That's what Paul means when he says, open to us a door. So he's saying, pray that God would give me and those with me opportunities to share the Gospel, which is the mystery of Christ. And number two, pray that God will help me proclaim the Gospel Clearly, he says in verse 4, that I may make it clear. So number one, Paul says, pray for me that God would give me opportunities to preach the Gospel. And then once He gives me those opportunities, would you also pray 
that when I preach the Gospel, that I would preach it clearly. Now of all the things, this struck me, of all the things that Paul could ask them to pray for, what would you be asking others to pray for in regards to you? He even says in that sentence, on account of which I am in prison. So he's saying, pray that God would give me opportunities. You hear that? Pray that God would give me opportunities to do what got me into prison. In fact, pray that God would give me opportunities to say very clearly what these hate, which is what gets me in prison. So he does not say, pray that God would get me out of prison. It's not a prayer request that he gives. Ever. He doesn't pray for release from prison. He doesn't pray for a successful outcome to his coming trial. He doesn't pray for a little rest or peace. He does not pray that God would release him from the task at hand. Rather, he asks them to pray for strength to complete the task that God has given him. Prayer should always be for power from God and seldom for release. Not to say that we don't ever, I'm saying seldom, not to say that we don't ever pray, as I know we do, that God would just release us from difficult circumstances and make those circumstances go better. See, if we remember that God is in control of our circumstances, then praying all the time that God would get us out of the difficult circumstances He has put us in is kind of like telling God He's doing a really bad job all the time. And so we do want to understand that, okay, I am in this difficulty okay, for my good. We've got all kinds of Scriptures and I'm going to... God's working for my good in this and I'm going to be turned refined in this furnace of affliction and through many trials we enter the kingdom of God. We all this Scripture that says that God is in control of these difficult circumstances and He brings them our way for our good. And the worst thing that could ever happen to any Christian is that everything could just go well all the time. That's the worst thing that could happen. You will not love God. You will not love others. You'll just bend everything in on you. So we need these difficulties. So we seldom pray for release from the difficulty, but you always pray for power and strength to honor God in the difficulty. And that's what Paul is asking them to pray for. And then I think it's sort of funny that Paul Paul is asking them to pray that he would speak well and clearly. Paul. He spoke pretty well. And he wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. He didn't have a problem communicating God's Word or theology or truth or preaching. And he's humble, isn't he? He's humble. Maybe he understands that his ability to do what he is doing hangs on the prayers of other believers who are intervening on his behalf to God and saying, God, continue to help Paul and strengthen Paul and empower Paul. 
He says, pray for more opportunities. It's like what he said in 1 Corinthians 16.9 when he says that a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So there's the wide door. That's how he pictures it. And there are many adversaries. Which is a strange verse. So Paul says that the Lord has opened a door for me to share the Gospel and there are many adversaries. And the reason that's strange is because many of us would say, well, if there's many adversaries, that means the door is closed. That's not an open door. An open door is easy. That's not how Paul thinks or prays. And then he says, when I declare this mystery of Christ, this mystery, it's a mystery because it has been hidden for so long. And now it has been revealed through Jesus Christ. He said the same thing in Ephesians 3.4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And then later in chapter 6. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel. So we've seen what kind of prayer should come from the mouths of Christians. And here we learn in verses 3 and 4 of the kind of Gospel proclamation that should come from the mouths of Christians. It should be eager and clear. Gospel declaration, proclamation from Christians should be Based on verses 3 and 4, eager and clear. Now I say eager or wholehearted or passionate or earnest because you have to be eager to share the Gospel in order to ask people to pray for number one. That God would open up a door for me to preach the Gospel. So You see, you don't pray that God would open up a door to something unless you're eager to do that something. So there's an eagerness in Paul. He wants to share the Gospel. And there should be an eagerness in Christians to want to share the Gospel with themselves, with their family, with their neighbors, with their co-workers, with their church. There should be an eagerness so much so that just like you pray for these other great opportunities that God would hopefully give you, you're praying for the opportunity to do this, to share the Gospel. And then... When He does give you the opportunity, we should desire that our Gospel proclamation would be clear. So the goal of evangelism is to make a mystery clear. That is what we're seeking to do. When a Christian evangelizes, he is seeking prayerfully to make a mystery clear. Before we move on to Paul's next instruction in verses 5 through 5 and 6 regarding the speech of Christians, just looking at verses 2 through 4, I want you to see that the very basics of all of our communication as Christians has just been laid out. The basics of all of our communication has just been laid out. Here are the basics of all the Christians' communication. Prayer to God and Gospel to others. That is the foundation 
that is the basics of all the Christian's communication. Vertically, horizontally. Vertically, prayer. Horizontally, gospel. And those are never switched. So we don't ever preach to God or pray to others. And it is surprising that even in church history that has been confused. But we don't ever preach or share the Gospel to God. The Gospel is for others. And we don't ever pray to others. Prayer is for God. So these are never switched. But the basics of all your communication, Christian, is prayer to God and Gospel to others. If we would keep that in mind, it would serve us really well. So in verses 3 and 4, we learned what we should speak to God and to others. And now in verses 5 and 6, how. How we should speak to others. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Let's start in verse 5. Paul says, for us to walk in wisdom. Then he explains specifically what kind of wisdom he means here. But let's talk about wisdom for just a few minutes. Here's a definition of wisdom. The kind of knowledge wisdom is. The kind of knowledge that makes a person know what ought to be done in order to live for the glory of God and the good of others. That's a definition of wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge, and it is the kind of knowledge that equips a person to think or speak or do or make decisions that will glorify God and be for the good of others. Wisdom is that kind of knowledge. So wisdom is useful knowledge put to use. So there's a lot of knowledge that you can have, and it doesn't necessarily do anything for wisdom. Okay, in the last couple years, I've become sort of infatuated with baseball. I've always liked baseball, but the last two years, I don't know what's come over me. I just have a really intense desire to understand and learn more about baseball. And I'm fascinated with it. I think it's the greatest sport. Fascinated by all the numbers and all the statistics and all the math and all the positions and how they work together. I mean, it's just it's amazing, I think. Now that knowledge that I've grown in the last couple years in terms of baseball, I don't think has really equipped me to make decisions in life better to honor God and for the good of others. 
I don't think my knowledge of baseball is, eh, I could probably make a case, but it'd be, it'd be rough. It hasn't really made it possible for me to live in a, a better way that brings God honor and brings good and joy for other people. So there's different kinds of knowledge that you can have, right? And some of you, you, you know lots of things and you have lots of knowledge, but is it the kind of knowledge, Christian, you want this, is it the kind of knowledge that makes a person know what ought to be done in order to live for the glory of God and the good of others? Do we have this useful knowledge and do we put it to use? That's what we're after. That's what we're talking about as Christians. That is good wisdom. And that kind of wisdom, the Bible says, leads to joy in a Christian. Proverbs 3.13 Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Or Proverbs 24.13-14 My son, eat honey for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. And know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future. So the author is saying that the more wisdom you have, the more joy you will have. The more you know how to navigate this life in a way that brings honor to God and good to others, the more joy you're going to have. Which is why we're told over and over again, Pursue wisdom, pursue wisdom, pursue wisdom. So how do we get wisdom? Let me list off five ways. Hoping that you desire wisdom at this point. I want to have that kind of knowledge that, that makes me know what ought to be done in order to glorify God. I want that kind of Knowledge. So how do we, biblically speaking, how do we get wisdom? Five things. Number one, read your Bible. Number one, we have to read our Bible. Colossians 3.16 Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the Word of Christ dwells in me richly, and then I teach and admonish others in all wisdom. But first, the Word of Christ dwells in me richly. Or Psalm 19.7 The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So it is the Word of God that makes the simple wise. So if I want wisdom, I have to read the Bible. Number two, pray for it. Pray for it. So we're back to prayer. You want more wisdom, pray for it. Do you remember how Solomon got his wisdom? He prayed for it. Prayed for it. God gave it to him. God was so impressed with his prayer. And he could have asked for all these things. So I'm going to give you all these things too. And I'm going to give you wisdom. And he was. He was the wisest man on the planet. Daniel also, who had much knowledge, he said in chapter 2, verse 30, Daniel, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, 
not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So wisdom can be given to you by God. So read the Bible and then pray that God would give you wisdom. It would help you to understand His Word and to apply His Word to everyday life. James 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. That's quite a promise. So here's something you can pray for that God will give you. You pray that prayer with a lot of confidence. There are things that you and I probably catch ourselves praying for that we can't really pray with a ton of confidence. Just throwing this out there, Lord. But I feel like I'm on pretty shaky ground biblically, and oftentimes I am, but I'm presenting my requests and desires. And... But you have a lot of confidence when you ask for this, if you're really asking for it. God, give me wisdom. Grant me wisdom. Give me the kind of knowledge that I need to have in order to do what ought to be done in this life to bring you glory and for the good of others. Number three, how do I get wisdom? Sound counselors or good counselors. This is what Proverbs is all about. And Proverbs is our greatest counselor. Here Solomon is just giving counsel to his sons and he's pleading with them, pleading with them to listen Listen to the instruction and the wisdom here. So we can gain wisdom through sound counselors. Do you have people in your life that, that are wise? And when you're facing a decision, you go to these people because they've proven themselves as having wisdom. And say, will you help me sort through what ought to be done? And then the more you sort through what ought to be done, you, you, you start to grow in wisdom. Number four, Practice, or specifically the practice of principles in real life experiences. So taking again God's Word and the principles in God's Word and then applying them to your life and doing that over and over and over again. You will grow in wisdom. Hebrews 5.14 But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. So knowing what ought to be done. Wisdom. For those who have their powers of discernment trained, and how is it trained? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the worst thing you and I can do for growing in wisdom is to know the good that we ought to do and to not do it. But to know the good that we ought to do and then to do it, now we're growing in wisdom. We are in constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So how do I grow in wisdom? Read our Bible. Prayer through sound counselors. Through the practice of principles and real life experiences. And number five, there is no real wisdom apart from Jesus Christ. So we must come to Jesus. Who Paul said earlier in this letter in chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and Knowledge. 
1 Corinthians 1.24 says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So this is what it means to walk in wisdom. And now go back to verses 5 and 6. Wisdom, in Paul's mind here, specifically for what? What follows? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. In other words, those outside the church, non-believers. Read verses 5 and 6, which will mean that we make the best use of our time, which will mean that our speech will what? Always be gracious and seasoned with salt. And then verse 6, the reason that we speak in this way to non-believers is so that we may know how we ought to answer each person. So what is this wisdom that we want and we're praying for and reading our Bible for and wanting to grow in? And Paul's mind here, specifically, he applies saying you need wisdom so that you can speak well to those who are outside the church. So Paul is saying that our words to non-believers are very important. We must say words, gospel-driven words, and we must say these words with grace. So it's not just getting the words right, it's getting the way we say the words right. I'm sure you've been or met Christians who say the right words, but say them terribly. And it does nothing good for the Gospel because they may speak truth, but they don't, as Paul says to the Ephesians, speak the truth in love. So Paul is just is, he is concerned with the clarity of the message that the truth is right, but he's equally concerned with the manner of the speech of a Christian. So here's what this means. The Gospel here, the Gospel drives the content of my speech, but the Gospel also drives the manner of my speech. And the Gospel drives all of it. Here's a couple, a couple quotes. First one by William Barclay again. Christians must commend their message with the charm and the wit which were in Jesus Himself. There is too much of the Christianity which stodgily depresses people and too little of the Christianity which sparkles with life. And Matthew Henry said, walk in wisdom toward those who are without. Be careful in all your converse with them to get no hurt by them or contract any of their customs for evil communications, corrupt good manners, and to do not hurt to them or increase their prejudices against religion and give them an occasion of dislike. So Christians are very concerned with not only what they say, but how they say it. Both important. 
So when a Christian speaks truth into the life of a non-Christian, and as often will be the case, the person who is not a Christian is offended, the Christian should go back to their closet, their room, and ask themselves the question, why was this non-believer offended? And Christians can be way too quick to answer that question. Well, they were offended by the Gospel. God said, don't be surprised when people revile you. They're going to hate you. They're going to be offended by the truth of the Gospel. And that may be true. Sometimes you share the Gospel, the truth of our sin and the remedy in Christ, and that is an offensive message. And sometimes that truth will offend people. But sometimes it's not the content of what a Christian says that offends. It's the manner in which they say it. It's not seasoned with salt. It is not gracious. And that's why the person is offended. The person is not uh, offended by the... The way I think of it is, is this person offended by the message or the messenger? The person should not be offended by the messenger but by the message. So we could be too quick to just answer that. Sometimes somebody is offended, not because they're offended by the truth of the Gospel, but they're offended because the person talking to them sounds like a jerk. They just sound like a jerk. They say I'm proud and arrogant and rude and dismissive. and We can all come across that way. So Paul is very concerned with the way these words are said. And he says specifically two things. I'll encourage all of us to think about our words, especially, of course, the words to each other, to our families, but our words to those outside. Are our words always gracious? Are they seasoned with salt? Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and whoever captures souls is wise. This is the kind of wisdom that Paul is talking about here. Walk in wisdom. It's the soul winning wisdom. That's the goal he gets to in verse 6 so that you may know how to answer everyone. Seasoned with salt. Do we know what it means to have our words seasoned with salt? There's been lots of different ideas put forth about what the Bible means when it talks about this. Jesus described Christians this way too. He says that we are the salt of the earth. What does He mean by that? What does it mean when Paul picks up on that and says, and your words need to be seasoned with salt? Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So salt was used in a lot of different ways. and It was used to preserve foods. So there's, there's, there's been different understandings of what this metaphor is. But I think Jesus says really clearly here that it has to do with taste. When food is not salted, much food, it tastes bad. And certainly in this day, and even in our day today, we may use salt to make food 
tastes better. Have you ever tried something and said, this is just kind of bland? It's what my wife means when she serves dinner and, and she'll say, it needs more salt. It needs more salt. It needs more seasoning. It would taste better if I had done that. So it means then, thinking of the speech of Christian, the speech of a Christian should taste good. Should be flavorful. Should be good. Should want more of it. Not be turned away or disgusted. John Piper says this way better than I do. And he writes in a way that I could not write and describes it in ways that would even be awkward for me to describe it in. But I'll read his words because I think it's so true. This is one of, in regards to this verse, this is one of the most refreshing things, he says, I have ever heard anyone say about personal evangelism. Think about it for a moment. How can you develop the ability to speak about Christ so that there is an appetizing flavor to it? How do you learn to talk about Christ in a way that makes people's mouths water? I think the answer is simply to spend time every day reminding yourself from Scripture why the Gospel tastes good to you. Some of us who have been Christians for a long time begin to neglect the crucial business of enjoying Christ. Then an opportunity comes along to commend Him to someone and we realize that all the reasons He is wonderful have been neglected and the keenness of our own taste buds has grown very dull. It is hard to salt your speech with the deliciousness of Jesus. That's the awkward statement for me. But so true. When you haven't been enjoying the taste yourself. So the wonderful thing about Paul's advice here is that the best way to prepare to be an advertisement for the satisfying taste of Jesus is to enjoy Him yourself. Every day we should go to the Bible and look for reasons why knowing Christ is the greatest thing in the world. And when we get up off our knees with our hearts happy in Him, we will be in the best position to make our speech appetizing for Christ. And more biblical support, John chapter 4, verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. So in conclusion, Paul has a lot to say in these verses about the mouths of Christians. What should come from our mouths? Well, prayer to God. Prayer that is steadfast. Prayer that is watchful. Prayer that is with thankfulness. Prayer that intercedes for others. 
And then in regards to our relationships with others, what should come out of our mouths primarily is the Gospel. And we should be eager to share the Gospel with others. And when it comes out of our mouths, we should seek to say it clearly. But not just the content of what we as Christians say is important, but the manner in which the content comes out of our mouths is important. And that's what Paul is concerned with in verses 5 and 6. That it should be with grace, humility, and love. And that our words should be seasoned with salt. If you were listening, as we looked at growing in prayer and growing in sharing the Gospel and growing in how we share the Gospel, we see that in every one of those disciplines, the most imperative thing is that we first go to Christ. We go to Christ and say, teach us how to pray. We go to Christ and remember the message of the Gospel. We go to Christ and have wisdom in Him. We go to Christ and watch how He shared truth how He shared the Gospel. We go to Christ for power and strength. So in all these elements of the Christian life and our speech specifically, it will require, it will require that we first get to first base. Remember? That we first go to Christ. That we first run to Him. That we let His words dwell in us deeply. And we ask for His strength and His power so that we could speak well as Christians. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are so thankful that You have given us Your Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to teach us and to be the presence of Christ in us and to make us more like You. We pray, God, that You would fill us with Your Spirit in such a way that our words are different. That what we say is different. And how we say it, God, is affected as well. We pray for the words of Christ to dwell in us richly. We pray, God, for the way of Christ to dwell in us richly. That we would be a people who speak truth to ourselves and to one another with grace and seasoned with salt. For your glory, God, and for the good of others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.